The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Guys, I love Wednesday nights. Can I just say that? I seriously love Wednesday nights because it just feels like a family. Um, It's such a consistent group. Every time I'm here, I just feel like I see the same faces, which is really fun um, because it just feels like a family. I feel like I know everybody here. It's great. And I got to say, as a Bible teacher, uh, it's the best privilege in the world to get to teach to people that you can tell are genuinely interested in the Word of God. And I just love getting to look around the world, getting get to look around the room while I'm teaching and just see that you guys are interested in what God's Word says and wanting to learn it, wanting to understand it. Super exciting. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you for coming. I know a lot of you guys work long days and a lot of you guys are tired, um, but thank you for coming to hear the Word of God. And, and we're going to pray even now that, that He would speak prophetically to us because uh, I don't know about you guys, I'm not interested in anything I have to say tonight. I'm interested in what God uh, wants to prophetically speak through His Word and that we can receive. So let's pray together. God, we just, uh, I can't even uh, explain how much we need to hear from you tonight. Lord, some of us in this room are stoked and we, uh, everything's going okay and we're gonna go home tonight feeling fine. Some of us in this room are just aching and struggling, maybe with depression, with physical ailments, with feeling like there's not a lot of hope right now, like things aren't going the way that they want them to. And so, Lord, whether we realize it or not, God, each one of us, whether we think we're doing good or whether we're not, we need the word of life. We need living water, Jesus. God, we need words that change our soul, change our mind, transform our mind to think correctly. God, we don't think correctly. God, everything in our heart, every fiber of our being is selfish and self-worshipping, God. We need supernatural transformation to change our desires, God, and to change the way that we think. So Holy Spirit, would you come into this room and would you begin to transform and remind us of the gospel? And I just pray that and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Book of Esther. We decided to do it. Uh, Actually, Jeff decided to do it in four weeks. Uh, Was that? No, I guess that was kind of... We decided to do it in four weeks. It was a joint thing, but it's been challenging because there's 10 chapters in the, in the entire book. So I'm way behind. Can I just say that? So next week, we're going to do five chapters. It's going to be awesome. We're just going to plow through. Um, we'll be here for three or four hours. It'll be good. Um, no, I'm kidding. But seriously. Um, so we're, we're, we're going through the book of Esther. We, we uh, have gone a little slower than I'd like to, but tonight we're going to cover some ground. So if you have your Bibles, we're picking it up in chapter, where are we? Chapter four. What a fantastic book, man. It's really been a killer story. I've just been blown away. I wasn't super familiar with the book of Esther when uh, we decided to do it, and um, it's been really, really fun to read, really fun to study. Um, So before we get into it, have you guys ever experienced um, a point in your life where you could not get yourself out of a situation, where you felt like you were completely stuck and there was absolutely no way that you could find a way out. And then somebody came in and actually made a way for you to get out of that. You guys have experienced something like that in your life. I think all of us probably have at some point, all of us can relate. I was trying to think back to my life, just just even as a kid, to um, times like that in my life. And 
I remember one time uh, when I was over at a friend's house who was a little bit older than me, my friend Wes, and I, I was really shy as a kid, and like I did something, I don't remember what it was, I like, um, I called his sister a bad name or something, just did something really like where if, if his mom knew that it was me, I would have been so crushed and so embarrassed, and when she was like, asked me about it or something, he like stepped in and was like, oh, that was me, or oh, I did that. I don't remember, it was a long time ago. But it was such a cool feeling to be like, man, my friend just totally took that for me, that was awesome. I remember even a few years after that, playing football with my friends in the park, and um, there was this one kid, he was, he, was like a, he was like this gangster kid, and he couldn't run very fast, but he was known for getting in fights, you know? And it's probably because he was always pulling his pants up, you know? And I was like this scrawny kid, and, and, and he couldn't catch me, and I thought it was so fun. He just never could catch me. Well, one time he got sick of it, and he decided he was gonna fight me because he was so mad that he couldn't catch me. So he's like in my face and he's screaming at me and stuff. And then my, my buddy Marvin, who was like six years older, I looked up to him, it was awesome. He just like pushes the kid like 10 feet and he's like, you mess with him, you mess with me. And I was just like, yes, what's up? I got older friends. It was just like the coolest feel because I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to get beat up, you know, uh, and, and, my, and my buddy just steps in and totally advocated for me, which was rad. It was a cool feeling. Um, as silly as those stories are, we, we all have stories like that. We, we all have points in our life. We, were, we remember where we couldn't defend ourselves and somebody stepped in, somebody took care of it for us. I think some of the most beautiful stories in history, whether it be a made-up story or whether it be true stories, are stories of advocacy, Stories where someone can't defend themselves and someone that can steps in and fights that battle for them. It's a beautiful thing. It's also one of the saddest things we see in history when people that couldn't stand up for themselves and no one did. And unfortunately, we see it on the news every day. Tribes in Africa, ethnic cleansings, abortion, 42 million babies a year that are murdered that have no voice to speak up for themselves. They need an advocate, right? They need someone with a voice to speak up. In World War II, six million Jews were murdered at the hands of Hitler and his regime. If someone hadn't stood up to him and stopped him and advocated for the Jewish people, he would have wiped him off the face of the earth along with a lot of other people, correct? Isn't that one of the most beautiful things that, that we were able to as a country unite with other countries and stand up and advocate for those people? In the Civil War, you see the North advocating for the slaves that didn't have a voice, that didn't have strength, didn't have a way to fight for themselves. Some of the most beautiful stories that we ever see in history are that of advocation, of someone standing up for someone that could not stand up for themselves. Now the story we're gonna look about is another cool story. A story where an advocate steps in and defends. And ultimately, as cool as that story is, it should only remind us, it should only inspire us to be reminded of the greatest story of an advocate that there ever was, and that's the gospel. Okay, so that's kind of what we're gonna do tonight. A little bit of background, a little bit of, um, just to catch you guys up on the last uh, four or so chapters that we've gone through, um, a lot has happened, and that's the thing about Esther, that's why it's been hard to plow through lots of chapters, because it's like, a lot happens really quickly. Uh, but basically, our story takes place and the Persian Empire, okay? It's about 400 years before Christ came onto the scene, so 400 BC, around that time. The Persian Empire is the one world ruling empire, okay? If you guys have been here the last few weeks, this is review. They basically rule the entire ancient world at that time. And who sits on the throne of that is Xerxes. He's a key character in our story. So we've got to know the Persian Empire a little bit. We've gotten to know Xerxes. There's two other characters in our story that are Jews, Jews that were carried away from their land. If you guys don't know the history of Israel, uh, there was what was called 
the exile where Jews were pulled out of their homeland and scattered all over the ancient world for 70 years. And then God, just like God said he would, after 70 years said you can begin to return home. We saw that in the book of Nehemiah. Well, some of the Jews decided not to return home. Two in particular are two of the key characters in our story. One of them is named, you guessed it, Esther, okay, a young woman. And the other one is her cousin slash adopted father named Mordecai. Okay, so Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is an older man. Esther is a younger woman. They're key characters. Then we have Xerxes, of course. Uh, In our story, opens up, Xerxes throws a giant banquet, basically, to honor himself and his glory and his strength, to show off how awesome he is. They have a party for six months with an open bar, which is a horrible idea. He asks his wife to come out and to show off uh, how good-looking she was or whatever in front of all of his drunk buddies. She says, no, not going to do it. So obviously, uh, he divorces her and, you know, um, listening to his young friend's advice because they were scared that if she defied him, that all of the wives would defy him. So he gets rid of her, which is a stupid thing to do. A few years goes by, he loses a war to, to Greece, and then he decides, you know what, I'm lonely, I need another wife. So he throws the biggest episode of The Bachelor that you've ever seen, uh, brings thousands of women into his harem, and one by one decides to see if they are what he wants as a wife. Esther, our young Jewish character, just happens to be one of those women selected to be in the harem. She has her night with the king, which was not romantic, was not lovely, was not beautiful. It was a horrible, disgusting uh, thing that King Xerxes was usurping his power to sleep with young women and all of these kinds of things. Um, She had her night with the king, she pleased him, and he made her his queen. So, a lot, again, a lot packed into a few chapters. Then we meet our other character who is Haman. Everybody say Haman. Boo, yeah, there it is. Okay, uh, this is even funner. Everybody say Haman the Agagite. I just wanted to hear you guys try to say that. This is really funny. You have to slow it down, Agagite. Haman was an Agagite, okay? He was literally from the mortal enemies of the Jews, okay? And Haman was exalted to basically be the right-hand man to King Xerxes. He's given a throne, he's given power, and Mordecai, our Jewish friend, the adopted father of Esther, decides that he is not gonna bow down to Haman. So he says, no way, not gonna happen. So Haman throws a fit, as people in power usually do, and says, you know what, you're not gonna bow down to me, well, I'm going to wipe out not only you, but the entirety of the Jewish people, all the women, all the children, all the babies, etc. all because Mordecai refused to bow to him. So, we pick up the story, and the Jews are in a dire situation, okay? They are to be exterminated. Haman says, I'll even foot the bill for this, I'll pay for it. The king, being the doofus that he was, has no problem with it whatsoever, signs the letters, sends it off, their, their fate is sealed, Jews are to be disposed of, all of them gone, okay? I said this last week, but this would be like someone coming into America and saying, we are going to exterminate every foreigner in our country, specifically, we'll say, Canadians. All of them, gone, dead, by tomorrow, women, children, everything. Military comes in, they're out, they're gone. This is the extent of what was going to happen. Not a great situation for the Jews. So let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. 
Now, you have to understand, this is the Jewish version of protest. He's grabbing his picket sign. He's running into the street and yelling and protesting with the megaphone, okay? Him and all of the Jews, what else can they do? They have a sentence of death over them. It's been signed. It's going to happen. So they tear their clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. They go out. They begin to wail. They begin to cry. They begin to moan, make a scene and protest. Okay, Jews were expressionate and are still. If you go over to Israel, they're always yelling with the, with the Arabs. They're just yelling at each other all the time. Um, it's crazy. But they're very expressionate people, okay? So they're uh, expressing this this anger and this frustration with the fact of of what's going to happen to their people when they rip their clothes and they put sackcloth and ashes. Um, But think about this, okay? This is actually good for Mordecai because Mordecai up to this point has kind of done nothing except for refuse to bow down to Haman, which went really well, okay? And now all the Jews are getting wiped out because of that. He's finally expressing some feeling. He's finally feeling something. He's feeling some remorse. He's feeling some struggle. And maybe he'll actually do something with that. Uh, We'll see. Verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. He can't go in because the king doesn't want any of his issues. He doesn't want people coming in clothed in sackcloth. He doesn't want people coming in that are having a hard time. He wants it all happy in there. Leave your issues outside. Verse 3. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, which with fasting and weeping and lamenting, And many of them lace in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther catches wind from her servant women or servant eunuchs that, hey, Mordecai and the Jews are out ripping their clothes and wearing sackcloth and ashes and mourning and weeping, and she doesn't know exactly why, so the first thing she thinks to do is, well, let's send him a change of clothes, okay? Uh, Mordecai refuses it because he says, what do you mean, change of clothes? I got to get the attention here of the government because they're trying to kill us. I need to make noise. I need to make a big issue here. Just a quick principle, okay, just a parenthetical principle if you're taking notes, don't be so quick to send somebody close. Okay, when somebody has an issue and something is going on and they're expressing emotion, Mordecai has finally sort of woken up. But to this point, he's never said anything about being a Jew. He's never said anything about the Lord. He's just kind of living in a pagan place, looking like pagan people, not really stirred up by anything. His daughter gets carried away to the harem of the king. He says nothing, doesn't say a word. And now he's finally feeling something. He's finally showing some remorse, showing some, some passion. And Esther just wants to clothe him. Okay, sometimes when people let out pain and sometimes when people show struggle, don't just try to brush it over, okay? Figure out what the issue is because it's usually a good thing. You know what, pain in your body is actually a good thing? And if you don't have pain in your body, you'll kill yourself and you won't even know it. That's what leprosy is. You don't feel anything anymore and you begin to rub your limbs off. Pain tells you that you're hurting yourself. When people are hurting, it's usually for a reason. Okay? And you have to figure out what that reason is. Esther needs to figure out why. She doesn't know why. She just says, well, just send him some clothes. Then, verse 5, Then Esther called for Hathak, we'll call him, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. 
that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So she sends servants to go figure out what's going on. Why is Mordecai not receiving the clothing that I've sent him? Why are they mourning? Why are they protesting? (laughs) And the answer that she gets back probably makes her stomach sink. It probably makes her stomach sink. Mordecai says, we need your help. Okay, understand the desperation of this. Sometimes you can read this and it can just escape you. They're all going to die. All of them. They're desperate. They have great desperation. And he sends this message to his adopted daughter, Esther, saying, please, do something because we cannot speak to the king. King Xerxes, let me just say, was the most powerful man in the ancient world. You didn't just go up to the king. You couldn't go plead your cause to the king. Nobody could. It didn't work like that. So they're all going to be destroyed, and they can do absolutely nothing about it. So he says, Esther, do something. Esther spoke, verse 10, to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, quote, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know In other words, it's common knowledge that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without him calling you, there is one law, and that is to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, his wife, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther says, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Hold on, I, I can't go before the king. Okay, I haven't even seen my husband in 30 days. He's busy with his harem. He's got plenty to do, okay? He, you don't, you don't go into the king. You don't just walk into the king. She's like, I'm his wife, and I don't even go into the king. They're gonna kill me. If I go in there, there's literally a guy, there's historical records of this. There was a guy standing behind the king with a giant ax, and if anyone tried to go up and he didn't raise a scepter, the head's gone, okay? So she's like, I can't do this. This is forbidden. This is terrifying. This is risking my life. You can imagine her thinking a little bit about what happened to the former queen, Vashti, when she displeased the king, how he treated her. She's like, man, Vashti screwed it up and look at her. What's going to happen to me if I go up to the king and try to ask him something? Now, this is important, okay? This is the crux of the book for Esther. Up until this point, Esther has been very identity confused. She is two people, okay? She is two people. She has been riding the wave of her lie, not telling anybody that she's a Jew. Nobody knows that she's a Jew except for Mordecai and maybe her servants. She's been just riding out this wave and now the stomach sinks because she knows the reality that she's gonna have to make a decision. Who are you, Esther? Who are you? Are you the Jewish girl who is God's daughter who's gonna stand for his people and make a decision for his holiness and, and, and seek after his heart? Or are you the Gentile queen that loves to be praised and adorned and live in comfort and be the wife of the king of the world essentially? Is that what you want? Are you the Gentile queen or are you the daughter of God? And she, in that moment, has to make that decision. It's upon her. There's no getting out of it because either she chooses her people all die and she gets to stay a Gentile, being the queen, or she could lose her life. It's a hard decision. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I never got that saying until recently. It's a good saying. 
She wants to have her cake in her hands and eat it. But then when she's done eating it, she wants the cakes to still be there. You guys follow that? Have, yeah, I never got that before. I asked my wife, I was like, what does that mean? And she explained it to me. And it's just changed my life. She, she can't have her cake and eat it too, okay? Um, she has to decide. It's the, most, <laughs> it's the most crucial moment in her life. Who are you, Esther? What are you gonna do? Now, we all have moments like this. We all, especially as Christians, where you have a moment, sometimes it's not a moment, sometimes it's just a long period of time, but sometimes it's a moment where you have to decide, who are you? Who are you? You've been living two lives on the weekdays, you're just like your buddies at work, on the weekends, you're just like the people at church. Man, I did that for a long time as a kid, just the double life finally comes to a point where you say, who are you? What are you going to do? What are you going to choose? And Jesus said that the cost of discipleship is expensive, didn't he? He said it costs a lot to be a disciple. There's a spot in Luke's gospel where Luke gives three succinct accounts of different people asking to follow Jesus. And I love that he clumps them together because it's very interesting to contrast them. The first person walks up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And Jesus famously responds. He says, the birds of the air, right, have nests. Foxes have holes. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you want to follow me? Great, we're going to be homeless. Okay, I don't have a house. I don't have a home. Then the next one in Luke is directly after that. Somebody comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my father. Okay, in other words, let me go get my affairs in order, get my estate taken care of, uh, my inheritance dealt with, bury my dad, uh, get someone to run the farm, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus famously says, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let the people that deal in the dead things of this world deal with the dead things of this world. If you want life, then come follow me, but it's going to cost you the dead things of this world. And then right after that, another person says, Jesus, let me, let me go say farewell to my friends and then I'll follow you. Let me say farewell to my home and I'll follow you. That doesn't seem like much to ask, right? And Jesus says, no one putting his hand to the plow looks backwards because he's gonna start drifting. It seems like harsh words, but what Jesus is saying is, is it costs a lot to be a disciple. And Esther has a sinking stomach moment where she realizes if she's gonna really be who God's called her to be, it's gonna cost her. It's gonna cost her a lot. She could lose her life. All of us have that moment. The rich young ruler had that moment, didn't he? How do I inherit the eternal life? Thinking he had it all figured out and Jesus drops the bomb on him. Go sell everything you have. And he goes, oh, I can't do that. It's too expensive. Can't do it. And he went away sorrowful. We all have those moments. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's probably not worth anything. It's a principle I've learned in life after buying cheap thing after cheap thing after cheap thing. You just get what you pay for, okay? Where your money is, your heart is also, okay? Uh, if it doesn't cost you anything, it probably doesn't mean anything to you, okay? That doesn't mean we buy our salvation, but it does mean that if it's worth something to you, then it's gonna show up in your value system. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ, and honestly, most of the time, it's not till everything hits the fan that we have to make that decision, right? Stuff just comes down, and then you have to say, okay, who am I? What am I gonna do? I have to make a choice right now. Am I Jesus's, or am I the world's? Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what, East, what, Easter, <laughs> what Esther had said. 
And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's a cool verse. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther's concerns to her father are met with some sobering words. Some sobering and realistic words from a very desperate man. He says three things in those verses. The first thing he says is Esther. He says, playing it safe won't allow you to escape. He's like, you think you're gonna save your life by not going before the king and not advocating and pleading for your people, but in reality, you're a Jew too. Did you forget? Did you forget? All Jews means all Jews. I think it's really interesting in our culture how much we obsess with health and longevity of life. Right? I mean, we think about it. We do studies about it. We spend money on it. We have million, billion dollar hospitals and, and, and medication and all of these things. I'm not saying that that stuff's bad, but it's funny how much we think about living longer and how little we think about the fact that we all know is 100% true and that's where we're all going to die. I just read the, cra- I heard the craziest thing this morning that marathon runners will probably die sooner than regular people. <laughs> what? You'd think if you ran a marathon that you'd be the healthiest person ever, but actually you start to ruin your heart by running too far. Crazy. So these people that are like, woohoo, I'm going to live longer for running for that. Oops, psych. I mean, we think so much about living longer, and the one thing we all know to be true, we don't think about it at all, and that's that we're all going to die. And Esther's like trying to think, well, if I could just, I don't want to die. I don't want to die either, right? But I mean, I don't want to die. She's like, I don't want to go before the king. Trying to, trying to preserve my life, but the reality is, and what Mordecai is saying is, Esther, what do you mean your life? Why are you holding it so tight? Jesus said if you hold your life, you're gonna lose it, right? If you give up your life for him, you get to keep it forever. That's the truth, that's the reality. And trying to keep your life, you're gonna lose it. And giving it away to Jesus, you can keep it. Reality is we can't keep anything. We can't hold on to anything. And honestly, guys, what life does Esther have? She's a pawn, okay? She, she was in his harem for crying out loud, selected out of his harem to be his queen. She hasn't even seen her husband in a month. He doesn't care about her. What does she have to lose? She's a pawn. She's essentially a slave. She doesn't have much to lose. She has everything to gain by becoming who God wants her to be. The second thing Mordecai says to her is he says, if you choose not to act, then someone else will. Esther, if you chicken out on this, if you don't advocate for your people, God will raise up somebody that will. Now, this is a lesson I've learned and I still learn so often. I went to work in a mega church and realized as soon as I left that I was a finger in a bucket of water. You ever heard that expression? I thought it was so valuable that they needed me. And then I left and I'm like, dude, that guy filled my shoes faster than I could even step out of them. I mean, we think we're so needed. We think that God needs us so much sometimes. And the reality is he doesn't. Mordecai says, you know, Esther, if you chicken out, God will raise someone up. He'll save us. I, I learned this the hard way one time. I was leading worship at, uh, at a youth event. I was actually, no, I was teaching at a youth event. That's right. And someone else was leading worship. And I was standing up here, kind of just watching everything. And this one kid who I knew was really kind of like shy, just went down to the altar. And like when you see that kid go to the altar, it just like hits your heart. Like, dude, that kid's, oh man, that kid's going down there? Because he's really got to be serious. And I saw him go down there, and I'm like, I'm like a pastor. You know, I'm like, oh, man, i got to go pray for him. And I hesitated for just like half a second because I was like, oh, but i got to get up and teach in a second, blah, 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 blah. And I waited half a second, and then another guy went. 
and prayed for him. And I was like, oh, good, you know. But it kind of just hit me in that moment, like, man, God doesn't need me to do anything. I mean, it would have been a blessing, right? I missed out on a blessing, but ultimately, God could send somebody to pray for that kid. He doesn't need me to do it, ultimately. The same thing with Esther. And then thirdly, Mordecai says this. He says, maybe all of this happened All of this stuff that's happened, you being selected to be part of this harem and all of this craziness, us being uh, in the Persian Empire and all of this stuff, maybe all of this happened, Esther, just so that you could be in a position where you could advocate for God's people. Now, God's name is not mentioned in this book, but it's amazing how clearly his sovereignty is laid out, isn't it? I mean, it's there. Even Mordecai saying, maybe Esther, maybe you're here for that reason. Maybe all of this stuff happened just so you could plead the cause of God's people. Could it be? Man, I don't know about you guys, I had moments like that in my life where I realized, wow, all that stuff that I thought was for nothing all led me up to here. I got to go back to Bend a couple weeks ago and and lead worship at the church I worked at before I came here, which was really good and really healing and really cool. And I talked to a guy that I got to disciple from like day one salvation, like didn't know anything about the scripture, didn't know the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, didn't understand any of it. I got to disciple him and see the fruit, and he gave me the longest hug I've ever had. I mean, he was like, dude, I'm so thankful for what you did. And I didn't even realize that it meant that much to him. It was really cool, really encouraging for a pastor that's like, whew, praise the Lord, that is exciting. But I thought back about that today, and I was like, man, how I met Joey was so random. Like, he wasn't even supposed to be there. He was trying to go to an AA meeting, and he went to the wrong building (laughs) and ended up at Journey Church, and I ended up just talking to him, and he looked like he was ready to cry. He was like about to lose his kids, and it was like just... God just put us together. And I was like, he wasn't even supposed to be there. I don't even know why I was in Bend. I was working for some retail company. It's just crazy, like, how everything worked out and and how perfect it was that I was there when he was there and how God just organized that. And what Mordecai is saying is, Esther, maybe this is all for a reason. Maybe you're here for for a reason. Verse 15. I gotta speed up. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, Father, all the Jews to be found in Susa. Go, Father, man. Go gather. Good grief. Do they, can you take the fourth grade again? Is that? I seriously need to. Um, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Is this the same Esther? I mean, she's changed. Something has happened in her. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is a big deal for her. She says, okay, her first time ever commanding as a queen. She says, let's do this. You guys get all the Jews together. We're going to fast. And when the Jews would fast, it would mean that they were petitioning seriously the Lord. Okay, they were like, okay, we want to see something happen. And so we're going to fast to see something happen. That's a big deal for Esther. She just stood out. She just stepped up and actually did something for the first time in the book. Now, chapter five, I'm just gonna paraphrase because if I read the whole thing, you guys will all be asleep and I'll be out of time. So chapter five, basically what happens is Esther goes before the king. You guys can read it when you get home. Uh, Esther goes before the king and and she says, uh, he he holds out his scepter, which is awesome. Holds out his scepter and and she finds favor in the king's eyes, which is amazing. And then he says, whatever you want, Esther, up to half of my kingdom, I'll take, literally, you can take up to half of my kingdom. For Xerxes to say that is a cool thing. I mean, it was God's favor, absolutely. And he says, okay, she says, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to have a feast. And I want you to bring Haman, the Agagite, right? 
and I want you to be there, and, I, and I'm gonna request it there. So she, she wants to set up this feast, and Haman's stoked about it, because he thinks he's the man, and he thinks that everything's awesome, and he goes away excited. And, and, but then he finds out Mordecai's gonna be there. He gets upset, goes and tells his wife, babe, Mordecai, he, I hate that guy. And she says, build some gallows, and we'll hang him on those, and that's essentially chapter five, okay? Um, you, can, you can read it more when you get home. Uh, crazy story. So, what does all that mean? What do we do with all this, okay? What do we do with this story? The Jews are in a really tricky situation, okay? They're in a tricky situation because they cannot plead their case. I talked about in the beginning the beauty of advocacy, the beauty of someone that cannot stand for themselves and then someone coming in and standing for them on their behalf. Well, this is what the Jews need. They need somebody. They're in a dire situation. They cannot approach the king. Haman is bent on destroying every single Jew, women, babies, all of it. They cannot overturn. The only one that can overturn this command, the letters are already out. They're gone. They're signed. The only one that can overturn it is the king. Death is imminent. They're stuck. They're in trouble. They need someone to advocate for them, just like we did before Christ just like we did before Christ. It's a fantastic picture of what it looked like before Christ stepped into the scene in our life. If you guys have your Bibles, flip to Ephesians. We just went through this Sunday, like two weeks ago. But this is the most fantastic picture. We're gonna go through it really quickly. The most fantastic picture of where you guys were at, where I was at before Christ stepped into the picture, what our issues were. Ephesians 2, one through four says this. And we'll, we'll go through and, and just break it down a little bit. It says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience of the body and the mind, sorry, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that is, I think, the most vivid and clear picture of our standing and our situation before we had advocacy in Christ. Okay, I wanna break that down. The first thing that Paul says in chapter two is that we're dead, that we are dead apart from Christ. That means that we can produce no life. You say, well, I'm alive, I'm moving around. Okay, you're like a rose, okay? Some of you more than others. Uh, Sorry, Jeff. Come on, that was, that was funny. Okay, uh, he's not even looking at me. So you're like a rose. You're cut off. You still look beautiful, okay? You still smell beautiful, but ultimately you're dying. A rose is dead in a week, okay? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. We're alive physically, but we're spiritually dead. Jeff just went over this on a Sunday uh, a, few, uh, a, few, a few weeks ago. Dead people don't know they're dead. Dead people can't search for life. They can't be reasoned with. They can't save themselves. That's simply the state of being dead. Then Paul says that you are sinners, okay? Now, we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. We're born sinners, and we choose to be sinners, now, what is sin? I'm going to read this. This is John's, John Piper's definition of sin. It's fantastic. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, 
The goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. It is not reverencing him according to who he really and truly is. So not only are we dead, unable to produce life, not only are we sinners, our very breath going against the nature of God. Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then it says also that we're following according to the course of this world. That means that this world is a current, and if you're not in Christ, you're in a current that literally defiles God at every possible avenue. According to the course of this world, you cannot float. You're either swimming upstream or you're going down. This world is a course, and we are stuck in it apart from Christ. Then he says, following the prince of the power of the air, that means that you're not serving Jesus, you're serving Satan. It's one or the other. You're in one kingdom or you're in another kingdom. You're in the kingdom of light or dark. He says you're living in the passions of your flesh. Okay, when you buy a computer, it has a default setting. Okay, that means that all of your settings are set to one specific way. When you are born, you have a default setting of selfishness. Okay, and the passions of your body and your mind, it says, are set to default selfishness. This is what we're born into. And then lastly, and most importantly, in Ephesians 2, it says we're, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. No one has to train us to rebel. No one has to train us to be sinful. Just look at kids, right? They come out selfish. I know, I have two. They come out selfish, and then God has wrath towards sinners. You don't hear this very often, but God has wrath towards sinners. If you don't believe me, think about Jesus in the garden. When he was in the garden, he sweat drops of blood. It wasn't because he was afraid. He wasn't a coward. It wasn't because he was scared of nails coming through his hands. It wasn't because he was scared of nails going through his feet or because of the crown of thorns or because of the beating or because of the mockery. He sweat drops of blood because the wrath that was meant for you and me was about to abide on him. Okay? If that helps you understand the seriousness of the position of wrath that we were in apart from Christ's advocacy, Jesus was terrified of it, and he drank it all, all of it. Okay, why don't I just go off on all that? Because that's where we were apart from advocacy. That's where we were before Christ came in and dealt with that. How does that play out practically, that state that we find ourselves in? Listen, our life is one giant justification. We spend every breath, every action, every ounce of energy trying to justify ourselves because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, because we're walking according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, because we're default set to selfishness. We spend all of our hours trying to justify ourselves in our own mind and in everyone else's mind. What that looks like is, I know that I'm a good person because... Fill in the blank. I raised good kids because I work hard to provide for my family, because I have a compassion kid, because I go to church on Sunday. Whatever it is, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves by what we do. And then secondly, we're trying to justify ourselves with excuses. I'm the way I am because my dad screwed me up. I'm the way I am because my mom and dad got divorced. I'm the way I am because I went in the military. I am the way I am because of the public school system. I'm the way I am because of our country. And it's all justification. I'm screwed up because of this or I'm justified because I did that. And the fact that we do that proves the fact that we know we're screwed up. 
If we didn't know we were, were screwed up, we wouldn't try to justify ourselves all the time. Everything that we do is trying to show ourselves and everybody that we are here for a reason, that we're important, and that we're special, and if we are screwed up, we have a reason. It's because we need an advocate. It's because we need to be justified. It's because we're in a state of disconnect apart from Christ where we cannot go before the king like the Jews. We cannot go before the king and plead our case. And even if we could, our case is not good. It's not good. So what's the solution? What's the solution? The solution is we need an advocate. We need an advocate just like the Jews were dying without an advocate. We need someone to plead our cause. Listen, Christianity is not man pleading his own case before God. That's religion. Man coming before God and saying, here's why I deserve to go to heaven. Christianity is Christ pleading man's case before God. Okay? There's a difference there. Listen to this, 1 John 121. The Apostle John says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. Did you guys catch that? Can I read that again? If anyone does sin, let's just say this. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, he Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is in heaven, ever living to make intercession for us, to plead our cause and our case. And even the better news is, is he doesn't plead our case because our case would get thrown out. Because guess what? I deserve hell. I deserve wrath. He doesn't just plead our case, he actually gives us his case instead. He says, I lived a perfect life and now I give you that perfect life instead. That's really good news. Jesus is the better Esther. Esther was an okay advocate, right? She was okay. But Jesus is a better advocate. He is the better advocate. Esther put on her best robes to go before the queen to go before the king, right? Jesus was naked and he was in rags. He was humble when he went before the king on the cross. Esther saved her people after being asked harshly, persuaded, almost pushed by Mordecai, like, come on, save us, come on. Jesus saved us while we were yet sinners, while we were at war with him, while we wanted nothing to do with him. He died for us, no one had to push him he did it willingly. He held himself on the cross. Esther approached the king hoping to live. Jesus approached the king on the cross knowing he would die. The king offered Esther up to half the kingdom and God gives Jesus all of the kingdom. Colossians 1.17, it's all Jesus's and we are the bride and therefore we are entitled to everything that is Jesus's. He gives it to us as his bride. Esther simply pleaded for their life. Jesus took their place and gave his life in place of theirs. It's good news. Jesus is our advocate. So what does that mean for us? What, is that, what does that matter? Is this just theology? What's the point of that? That means that when you're feeling down on yourself, when you're beating yourself up all the time, it means that you know why. Because you're trying to be your own advocate. 
It means that you're trying to plead your case and justify yourself before God by feeling so bad that you can't even live. Rather than saying, Jesus is my advocate. Paul said, I don't even judge myself let alone do I let you judge me, because Paul knew Jesus was his advocate. He said, Jesus is the one pleading my case. Jesus is the one that tells me I'm justified. So what does that mean? It means we have peace, because we don't have to justify ourselves anymore. We have someone doing it for us in heaven. It means that we're made alive, that we're not dead anymore. It means that we can stop living our entire lives centered around trying to justify our existence. You know, that's really the heart of bragging. It's the heart of pride. Whenever we say that we're good at something or allude that we're good at something, we're trying to justify our existence. See, I'm important. I matter. It's good that I'm here. No, it's not. Quit trying to justify your existence. Jesus justifies your existence. He did it on the cross, and it's exhausting trying to prove that you're supposed to be here. You're here because God created you, and you fell, and you're redeemed, and your identity is in him. You don't have to justify yourself. Jesus justifies for you. It means that Jesus day and night is at the right hand of the Father. It means while you're sleeping, he's up there praying for you. Look at John 17 when he prays for the church. That's what he's doing eternally. He's in heaven praying, making intercession for us. He's the great high priest, the greatest high priest. And it means that his advocacy doesn't end at salvation. It's not like Jesus pleaded your case to get you in and now he's gone. No, he's still, when you blow it, when you screw up, when you stray, he's still there pleading your case, praying for you, giving you atonement, always. He's in heaven, that's why it's so important that he rose. Yes, he died, yes, he was crucified, but he also lived to give you that perfect life and then he rose to go to the right hand of the Father to plead you and I's case. I'm so glad he's not in the grave. How can he advocate for me if he was in the grave? He's in heaven, right? That's good news. I want you guys to say this with me. This is 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Can we say that together? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Can that be our memory verse for tonight? There's one mediator, not Mary, not Peter, not John, sure as heck not yourself, not me, not Jeff, not Billy Graham, nobody. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is who we look to for everything. And Hebrews says that he is a good high priest because he's relatable because he's been through it, because he's suffered, because he's cried, because he's felt, because he's struggled, and he knows what you're feeling and what you're struggling with. So lastly, how do we respond to that? And this is, this is gospel-centered teaching, okay? How do we respond to what he did for us? Not how do we do something so he does that to us, but no, look what God did. He advocated for us. Now, how do we respond to that? One thing, we advocate for others, we advocate for others like he advocated for us. Guys, I'm, I'm gonna say this again because it's, it's staggering. And, and this, if anything, this is out of conviction for myself. 42 million little boys and girls are murdered every year, okay? Can you just, the gravity of that smack you in the face really quickly? Who's advocating for them? Are we advocating for them? Am I advocating for them? They don't have a voice. 
They can't speak. There are people in the world, this is why justice matters. This is why social justice matters because Jesus advocated for us and now we get to go advocate for others. And I wanna leave you with that. Not as something to put on your list of guilt, but as something to say, because Jesus advocated for us, how do we advocate for those that can't? How do we advocate for those babies that don't have voices? How do we advocate for those that are being sold into slavery, that are making our pants so we can buy cheap clothes? How do we advocate for them because Jesus did it for us? It has to be birthed out of response to the gospel. It has to be because Jesus did it for us, what are we gonna do? Does that make sense? I just wanna give you that. I want you to pray about that tonight. I'm gonna pray about that too. God, how do I advocate in Medford, Oregon? Who doesn't have a voice? And how do we model what Jesus did for us by advocating for them? Amen? Let's stand together.